name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Of all the religious leaders who have lived, Jesus made the most exclusive, most far-reaching, most spectacular claims of all of those leaders combined. He claimed to be God. He claimed to come from God. He claimed to be the only way for us to know God and to have a personal relationship with God. He claimed... He claimed to be the only one who can give us life beyond the grave. He claimed to be the only one who can raise us back to life and give us immortality. In John chapter 3, verse 13, we actually looked at this verse in Sunday school, but in John 3, 13, Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And you remember, that's John's purpose in this whole book. It is to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. Jesus said, no one has ever gone to heaven. That's what he says. No one has ever ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, no one went to heaven. I have come down from heaven so that you might live eternally, so that you might have eternal life. Now, whatever you believe about these claims that Jesus made, and and I look around and I don't see too many guests. I see a few, but we're glad you're here. And... um, And whatever you believe about these claims, you have to acknowledge, everyone has to acknowledge that Jesus, his life impacted our planet more than any other person, maybe maybe more than all others, you know, put together. Listen again to this poem. Many of you have heard it already. One solitary life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old. His friends ran away from him. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing. The only property he had on earth... The only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Now here's the point, uh, I guess, of the author. 19 centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race. The leader of mankind's progress. And when you think of Western City, surely is... And the leader, the leader of mankind's progress, all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings who have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. But in spite of that, in spite of that, his family did not believe in him. And in spite of that, the nation to whom he came would disown him and eventually kill him. They opposed him. Chapter 7 is the continuation of that opposition that Jesus has begun to experience back in chapter 5, six months earlier when he was back in Jerusalem at the Passover. Now, we will be studying today Jesus' trip back to Jerusalem for what is known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
The Feast of the Tabernacles occurred in October, October 15th to be exact. And it is it's six months prior to Passover or six months after Passover. It's right in the middle of the year, however you want to, to look at that. Six months have gone by since the, the discourse of the bread of life. You remember Jesus and John records for us in chapter 6 how Jesus feeds 5,000 and he walks on water. But really all of that is just setting the stage for the discourse of John chapter 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. That is really what John was seeking to, to teach. Six months have gone by. Many things have happened in the last six months since that time. In fact, if we were to go back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would find all kinds of events that occurred in Samaria where Jesus lived and was having ministry. But now the Feast of Tabernacles has come. And let me give you a little bit of background to that. It's, it's a major celebration for the Jews. In fact, it's their most joyous holiday. It's the last holiday of the year. They, they, what they do during this eight-day period, the last day being called the, the great day of the feast, but in this eight-day feast, what they do is they go outside of their house, they take sticks, and they build themselves a booth to stay in for the eight days. They get thatch, and they make themselves a shelter, and they live in these booths for eight days. So if you're a kid, you love this because you are camping. This is the Israelite camping trip of once a year. And they, they do this to commemorate the time when God set them free from Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness for, for 40 years and didn't have a permanent home. They're remembering that. That's what the Feast of the Tabernacles was all about. It was remembering that. It was also celebrating the harvest that was coming, coming in. And so this is a, a great, joyous celebration. Some people have likened it to our Thanksgiving. You know, the wilderness experience of the pilgrims and then them coming out and, and uh, we're celebrating the Thanksgiving that America has become. And so some people are saying that this is sort of like their Thanksgiving celebration, except they, they live outside for eight days and they celebrate by camping during, uh, during that time. So that's where we find ourselves. The, 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 the Feast of the Tabernacles is at hand, maybe a few days away, and we, we come upon the text that we're looking at this morning. So what I want to do today is I want to work our way through verse 24 of chapter 7. This is really a unit, but it's just too much material to cover. And so we're going to go 1 through 24. And, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to teach the text. I'm going to teach you what transpires in the text, not that you don't already know. But I'm going to teach you that. But I'm also going to draw out four lessons for us. You know, I, I struggle, not struggle, but I wonder about that. Is, is that the way to preach? Is, is that what I should do? Draw out practical applications for us and things that we should try to do in response to what we're learning? And, and, I, and I, I come back to it all the time. Some people might say that's just too much pragmatism, but, but I, I think it is pragmatic for us to look at the text and say, how is it that God desires, what, what can we learn from this that we can turn around and live out in our lives? So I have four of those lessons. And again, I think they come from the text. Uh, you can be the judge of that, but I'll share with you those four lessons as we go along. So here's, here's how we're going to begin. I'm going to give you the first lesson that I want us to take away from today's text, and that would be this. Familiarity Familiarity with Jesus is dangerous. Familiarity with the Savior can be um, blinding to us. So let's begin to look at the text. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in, in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths or tabernacles or tents or whatever your translation might say, was near. 
Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, and its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So in this text, Jesus is in Galilee. He's been in Galilee since probably the last Passover. You remember that's when he healed the para, not the paralytic, but the lame man there by the pool of Bethesda. And he's not gone back. And he stayed for the year in Galilee. And the reason John tells us he did not go back was because of the hostility of the Jews in Judea, in Jerusalem. They had decided, even John records for us here, they were hoping to kill him. They had already by this point tried to kill him. Now recognize six months from now, at the next Passover, they will indeed kill Jesus, okay? So, so we're six months out from that. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem, he says. John says, because of the hostility that's there. Now, when the Feast of Tabernacles comes, you know, it's, it's right on the horizon. His four brothers come to him. We know that the Bible tells us he has four brothers. They were James and Jude, Joseph and, or Joseph and Simon. And uh, Jude and James, of course, became obviously leaders in the church. They wrote two of the New Testament books that are in our New Testament. But that doesn't mean that Simon and Joseph also weren't followers of Jesus. I think they all were. Jesus also had sisters. We uh, don't know their names, but he also had sisters. And so these four brothers come to Jesus, and here is their request. They say, Jesus, come up to the Feast of Tabernacles with us. Come with us. Now, what motivated their request? Now, there's been many suggestions as to what was their motivation. But, and here's the problem, guys. And I'm going to say this again at the end of this talk. We cannot judge people's motives, right? So it's really hard to know what their motivation was. Some have suggested that the motivation of these four brothers was that uh, they had not seen the miracles of Jesus. Now, granted, you know, two and a half years have gone by. I, I, don't, I don't think they're right, but some have suggested they haven't seen the miracles, and so they're trying to get Jesus to go with them so that they can witness some of the miracles. Others have suggested that this, this thing about coming up to the Feast of Tabernacles is nothing but a mockery of Jesus. They're making fun of him. They don't believe in him. It tells us that in verse 5. They yet don't believe in him. And so they're mocking him and making fun of him. I, I don't think that's right either. I'm going to suggest to you instead, this is, this is just Jimmy's speculation, but I'm going to suggest to you that I think the four brothers are kind of like a self-appointed political action group that have come to Jesus, and they're basically saying, if you're going to do these things, here's two things that you have to do in order to, in order to become what you want to become. You have to have exposure, and you have to solidify your base. Doesn't that sound really political? You have to have exposure, and you have to solidify your base. And so they, in essence, say to him, Galilee is too small. If, you, if you're going to do these things, why are you doing them in this, in this place that's so small? It's like you're doing them in secret. Don't do them here. Go to, go to Judea. Now this week, most of you probably know, but Ann and I and my family went to New York to, to watch a play. And we have 6,500 people in Surrey. They have 6,500 people in our hotel. You know, so uh, it's just that different, right? That's an exaggeration. There was 6,500 in our block. So uh, there's lots of people in New York. If you really wanted exposure, go to New York as opposed to Surrey County. And so that's what they're saying to him. First, go to Judea where everybody can see what you're doing so that you'll have great exposure to 
to what you're doing, to what it is that you want to accomplish. The second thing they say is you need to go to Judea so you can solidify your base. You need to make sure that the disciples in Judea are seeing all the things that you're doing. So go to Judea and solidify your disciples there. Make sure that they know you're doing all these things that you're doing. So I personally think the disciples, had, I mean, not the disciples, excuse me, his, his brothers had an agenda. They had a plan. And, and yet what, what may seem to contradict that is in verse 5 where it says they were not yet believing in him. So let me comment on that for just a second. I, I think if you'd asked the brothers, was Jesus a good brother to you? I think they would have said, yeah, he was an awesome brother to us. After all, he was perfect. He was the perfect older brother. <laughs> How would you like to have had him for your older brother, right? Always mom and dad, always comparing you to him, right? So, um, yeah, I think they would have said, yeah, we love him. He's great. He's compassionate. He's, kind. He's a great older brother. That's what I think they would have said. I think if they'd asked him, Do you, does Jesus have powers, unusual powers? They would have answered and said, not while he was growing up, but now he obviously does. We don't know where they come from, but he can obviously do some tremendous things. If they'd asked the brothers, do you think he's the Messiah? I've thought about this. I don't know what they would have answered. They may have answered yes. In other words, this whole thing about going to Judea might be because they have come to accept that Jesus is this earthly Messiah that's coming. They, they may have bought into that, and that's why they're wanting him to go to Judea to solidify his base and to make his message known to more people. But if they had asked the brothers, this I know for sure, is Jesus the Son of God that came from heaven? Is he the bread of life that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood so that you yourself might have eternal life? They would have answered categorically, no. We grew up with this man. We slept in the same bedroom with him. We ate at the same table with him. He did not come from God. He is not God. They would have vehemently denied that Jesus was the Son of God. So here is, this brings me to... Uh, this brings me to my lesson for us, that familiarity is dangerous. Why is it that his brothers did not believe in him? Why, they, they would eventually believe, by the way. They're in the upper room. The Bible says that Jesus appeared to his oldest, youngest brother, James. He personally appeared to him. So I have a feeling that, that James was able, you know, they're, they're not really walking by faith. James gets to walk by sight, if you would. Remember Jesus said to, to Thomas, blessed are you because, I mean, you see, but blessed are those who are going to believe and not see. Well, James was one of those who got to see. He got to see Jesus. They would all eventually believe. They'd all be in the upper room. So I think all of his siblings believed eventually. But why are they not believing now? They're not believing now because they are so familiar with Jesus. The familiarity of growing up in the same home with them kept them from even being able to see who he was in spite of all the miracles that he did. So here's, here's, my, here's my lesson for us. We need to be careful that our familiarity with Jesus, and I'm talking to those of you who grew up in the church. I'm talking to all of us who, since we were a child, since we were just like so many babies in our church, growing up since they were born in the fellowship of God's people. We, we need to be careful that, that our familiarity with Jesus doesn't cause us to miss who he really is and to treat him accordingly. 
You know, the, the, the world's glad to say Jesus was a good man and a great man, maybe a prophet, even a, a guru. I, up, in, up in New York, I got to talk to several taxi cab drivers who were from Pakistan and where else were they from? And they were from several, you know, Middle Eastern countries. And I would always say, yeah, you're, you're a, are you a Muslim? And they would say, yes, I am. And, and so I'd say, well, that's really cool. And at some point in the conversation, I'd say, you know, I know that you as Muslims revere Jesus as a prophet. And they would also say, oh, yes, we do. And I would say, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the Injil. I don't know if you've ever read the New Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't claim to be just a prophet. He claims to be the Son of God, which is a little bit different. I said, can I just put this bug in your head to maybe just pick up a New Testament and read what it says about Jesus personally? You see, Jesus, I mean, everybody's willing to accept Jesus as, as a Messiah. Even his brothers may have been willing to accept him as a Messiah, but they were not willing to believe that he was God living among us. They said, no, we can't. We're so familiar with him. That can't, that can't be who that is. And, and I think there's a danger in here for us that we can read the Bible stories growing up over and over and over again, and we miss the import of who Jesus is. We, we, we miss how Jesus is not just a, a good figure in history, but that he is God. And can I tell you something else that the familiarity with Jesus growing up in the church, can, how it can hurt us, how it can be dangerous? And I really don't know how to say this because Jesus said to his disciples, I call you friends. So I don't really want to take away from the fact that we have a personal friendship with Almighty God, that, that Jesus is our friend. I don't want to take away from that. But, but we need to be careful not to treat Jesus as just a, a good old buddy and just an, another one of our good old friends. He, he is... He is our Savior. He is our Creator. He deserves such respect. Don't let your familiarity with Jesus cause you to just think that sin in my life doesn't matter. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. After all, Jesus is my friend. Jesus died for me. You know, we should, out of our reverence for this one who is our Creator, we should live godly lives. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, I mean, they challenged us to be holy men of God. The danger in our familiarity with Jesus, growing up in the church with all the Bible stories, is that we forget who he is. And we forget that he, he calls us to, to treat him as God, that he is God and, and loves us so. Let me move on. Here's the second lesson coming from those same verses. And, and, and this is a, another thought that I had that I'd like to challenge us with. And it's this. Recognize that God's way of success is never self-promotion. God's, God's avenue to being what we ought to be, to being what we should be, to being everything that God wants us to be, it, it is not a matter of us getting there by promoting ourselves. It is a matter of uh, instead of us entrusting ourselves to Him and letting Him do all the promotion that needs to be done in our life. Whatever these brothers, whatever their intent was in asking him to go with them, it is really, really clear. They are saying, go to Jerusalem and promote yourself. You need to go there and promote yourself. You know, there's, there's bigger crowds. Your disciples need to see you. You go and you make sure everybody knows about you. You, you show yourself mighty amongst them. And, and Jesus is not willing to do that. As a matter of fact, listen carefully. Jesus is going to do just the opposite. 
And we've talked a little bit about this last week but in the, in the Messianic secret. But Jesus is continually hiding himself, right? He is never exalting himself. He is always humbling himself and lowering himself. Many of you know that Paul's description of Jesus in Philippians 2 is, is I think, should be a, a baseline scripture for all of us. I think it should be a foundation on which we all build our lives. But in, second, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this about Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I'd love to take credit for this, but it was actually Bill Hybels who first said it. That Jesus, instead of climbing the ladder of self-promotion, he lowered himself on the ladder of self-promotion. I mean, he has equality with God. And instead of climbing it or staying where he was, he lowered himself rung after rung to the point that he would be rejected, scorned, and eventually killed. And not just killed, but killed as the most common thief of all killed on a cross where he hung naked in shame for what he had never done. We so often want to be like the disciples. I mean, like the brothers, sorry, like the brothers. We, we, want, we think somehow or another, if I don't toot my own horn, if I, don't, if I don't promote myself, no one else will. In fact, isn't there a saying like that in our culture? If nobody... If nobody Something like that. Nobody brags on you. you got to brag on yourself because nobody else will kind of thing. But the Bible teaches us, and Jesus understood that, that the road to success is not self-promotion, but it is trusting ourselves to, to God and letting God promote us. And so that passage continues in Philippians where Paul writes, Therefore, because Jesus did this, because he didn't go to Judea and promote himself, because he was obedient to God's desires for his life, God promoted him. Therefore, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The pathway to greatness is not me tooting my own horn. The pathway to greatness is humility. The pathway to success before God is that I am willing to humble myself and make myself accountable to God, submit myself to Him. Now in practice, I'm not trying to say that if there's a promotion at work, you shouldn't apply for it, or if you get a promotion at work, that you shouldn't take it. I'm not trying to say that. What I am saying is that you don't have to manipulate things to get the promotion, you, you don't have to lie. You don't have to, you know, spin yourself into something that you're not so that people will somehow recognize you. You trust God. Humility covers us with honesty. If you want to know if you're a humble person, then are you an honest person? Are you an honest person about who you are, your struggles, your faults, your trials? You know, we're always just trying to cover up all those things because we, we want to look better than we are. And, and, and that's, not who we're, that's not who Jesus was. And that's, that's the lesson that I think we need to learn from here. When his brothers are saying, promote yourself. No, he's saying, it's not my time. God doesn't want me to go up with you. God doesn't want me to promote myself here. In fact, when he does go up there, he's going to go up in secret. People aren't going to even know he's gone up there at first. I, uh, I read a story this week that I think sort of illustrates this. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't honestly say I know an awful lot about the man, but one thing I have learned about him is that he was a man of greatness, 
but he was a man of extreme humility. At Gettysburg, 40,000 men died. And four months after that battle, the, the states, I'm a, I'm, I don't know if it was just the north or the north and the south, I, you know, they had a truce fire. Uh, 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 and I don't know how it worked, but they had the dedication of the Gettysburg battlefields for burial of the, of the 40,000 men that died in that battle. And, uh, and the main speaker, I mean, his name was, his name was Edward Everett. And he was the, I think, Secretary of State, I guess obviously for the North. He was the Secretary of State. He was the president of Princeton, of Harvard University, or Princeton, one of those two. And, and man, he was just really popular. And they, they lauded him with all kinds of pomp and circumstance. And he came up there riding in a carriage, and, and it was all about him. They gave him a standing ovation at the beginning, at the end. They sang a hymn after he spoke. He spoke for two hours. He spoke for two hours, and we'd cringe at that, but that was like going to a ball game, or that was going like to a movie. Seriously, that was, that was a great form of entertainment, so people went to hear these speeches. But he gave this two-hour speech commemorating that. And there was another man who was asked to speak, but it was almost like at a perfunctory, I guess. So they, they, they just had to do it, I guess, like ribbon-cutting or whatever. And this man came up on his horse... Nobody, nobody gave him any accolades. I mean, he wasn't recognized amongst the dignitaries, but he was asked to speak after, uh, after Everett, after Mr. Everett. And of course, y'all know who it is. It's Abraham Lincoln. He spoke for three minutes. And, uh, and his speech, after he sat down, there was very little applause for Abraham Lincoln, and, and he left with very little recognition. But of course, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address became one of the most famous speeches of all times. And, and Abraham Lincoln, how many of y'all would have known the guy who spoke for two hours? Maybe Janet or some of you might have known who were history buffs, but most of us would not have known his name, right? See, God, God raises men who are willing to walk in humility. And, and you know, Abraham, more important in his speech was, I mean, he's the president and he doesn't demand anything. He doesn't demand to be the main speaker. He doesn't demand a carriage to bring him up there. He he just goes and speaks for three minutes, and his words become some of the most profound words in all of our history. His humility, his humility, and it's not just here, it's all kinds of evidences in his life where, where Abraham's humility led him to be um, lauded by others, but I think that's the work, of, the work of God. Following Jesus' example, we don't need to promote ourselves. Now, let's move on to the text, verse 10. But when the brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if, as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Where is he? There was much grumbling amongst the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, this passage bothers people a lot because it seems like Jesus is lying, right? He just told the other men he's not going, but now he goes up secretly after they, after they leave. And there's, there's several answers for that that I think are, are very plausible. One of them is, if you're reading from the King James or the majority text, it'll say, Jesus said, I'm not yet going up. The older texts don't have the word yet in them. The majority texts, which came later, have the word yet in it. Was it there or was it not? I think it really is immaterial because in the Greek language, Jesus uses the present tense. 
tense, meaning I am not going up with you now, not I'm not going up later. He's saying I am not going up now in the present. But another way of looking at it, if, if you remember the context of the first verses, he keeps saying it's not my time to go up yet. It's not, not, it's not my time to go up now. You can go up whenever you want, but I, it's not my time to go up. Now, you know, we, we tend to think, well, my time's going to be a long, long time away. Maybe it's just days later. But I think it, Jesus is not lying, in other words. But he goes up later and he goes up secretly. Now, when we get up there, when he gets, when he gets down there, excuse me, or up there to Jerusalem, when he gets there, what he, what he finds, what we find is that his popularity is high. Everybody is wanting to know, where is Jesus? Where, why is he not here? They're looking for him. But we also find that the people are rather divided about him. Some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he's not. He's leading people astray. But regardless of, regardless of, of what side, but especially those who, are, those who are in favor of Jesus, they are not speaking out for fear of the Jews. Now, just, just so you know, everybody's Jewish. Everybody's Jewish, right? So when it says he's afraid of the Jews, he's, not talking, he's talking about a specific group of Jews. He's talking about the religious leadership. And in fact, Jesus is going to be addressing them in the verses that follow. But it's the Jewish leadership that they're afraid of. People who support him are not willing to speak openly about him because they are afraid of what the Jewish leadership will do to them. Reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago about Nikita Khrushchev. You know, he followed Joseph Stalin, and, uh, Stalin, and he actually he was responsible for the de-Stalinization of, uh, of the Soviet Union, meaning he tried to remove a lot of the institutions that let Stalin rise to power. But he was one of Stalin's colleagues, and so after Stalin, he was making a speech, and he was denouncing the policies and atrocities of Joseph Stalin, Stalin and someone, someone in the group heckled him, and this is what they said, you were one of Stalin's colleagues, why didn't you stop him? Somebody heckled that from somewhere in the crowd, this big crowd of people. And Mr. Khrushchev immediately stopped and said, who said that? Who said that? Starts yelling at the crowd, and you hear a pin drop. Nobody is willing to own it. And then Nikita said, now you know why. In the same way that that person was afraid to own his own comments, Nikita was, or Mr. Khrushchev was afraid to own, afraid to stand up against Stalin, and they're afraid to stand up to the Jews, even though they support Jesus. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from, from the... He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, i.e. me, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So it's the middle of the week. Now exactly when Jesus went up to the festival, maybe he went up in the middle of the week, maybe he went up early and kept himself hidden, we don't know. But in the middle of the week, Jesus shows himself. Remember, it's eight days long. So this is probably Wednesday or Thursday. And he goes into the temple and he sits down and begins to teach. And it says that the Jews were amazed and astonished by his teaching. Now that's not the Jewish, Jewish populace, uh, population in general. This is the Jewish leadership. And they are saying they are amazed and astonished by his teaching. And they're amazed because they say he's uneducated. And here's what they mean by that. 
that Jesus did not sit under any other rabbi. Jesus didn't, he's not, he didn't sit under Hillel, and now he's teaching Hillel's teachings, right, in, in his own. He, he had no rabbi. Nobody had taught him. And so they're basically, there are two things they're saying. One is your teaching is your own, but they're also amazed by his teaching. It reminds me there's another time when it says that the population that listened to Jesus, they were amazed by Jesus. Anybody remember why? He talked with authority. Thank you, Sue. That's exactly right. He spoke as one with authority, different than the other leadership. You know, Jesus talked, spoke as if he knew what he was talking about, right? And uh, so Jesus says to them, if I'm making this up on my own, then I am just about my own glory. So anybody who stood up and, you know, and this is how it is today, even in our world and in our culture, people who speak up, I mean, stand up and they get a following behind what they say, they're really all about their own glory. And so Jesus said, if I'm just speaking my own stuff, I'm about my own glory. But I am not speaking my own stuff. I am speaking that which God has taught me. I am speaking that which I have learned from the Father. I'm not speaking on my own. And because I speak for Him, I am bringing this from Him. And I seek to bring glory to Him. Not so Just like any rabbi would have brought glory to the rabbi who taught Him, Jesus says, I am bringing glory to my Father. This one, me, who is bringing this, I, I am bringing glory to my Father because what I'm saying is true and I am righteous. Now, I've said this a lot lately in the last year or two, but you know, Jesus, I think, is discipled by the Holy Spirit in his emptiness, in his kenosis, where he emptied himself. I, I am convinced, and again, I can't prove this, but I think Jesus was discipled by the Holy Spirit. I think those mornings, those mornings out when no one else is with him, those times on the hillside, on the mountainside, when everybody else is rowing across the Sea of Galilee, I think those are the times that the Holy Spirit is discipling and teaching Jesus so that he can then turn around and teach this word from, from the Father. But it's in the middle of those verses that Jesus says something remarkable, and it's the lesson that I want to share with you this morning. And I think this would be germane to, to you. I think this would be germane for you to share with others, maybe, if, uh, if, you're, if you're talking to someone uh, about faith issues and about Jesus. And here, here's the lesson that I've written down. The key to knowing the truthfulness concerning Jesus and his teaching is the willingness to love and obey God. In other words, Jesus tells us, and I'm going to show you in just a second, but Jesus tells us that the key to knowing whether he is who he says he is and the key to knowing whether what he says is true or not, he says it rides or falls on whether you are willing to love and obey God. And if you are willing to love and obey God, he says, you will know that I speak for God. Look at verse 17. If any man's will is to do his will, that is God's will, he shall know whether the teaching, my teaching, is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I don't know about you, but do you ever wonder, is, is what I believe true? Is what Jesus said true? I mean, is the New Testament and the recordings of Jesus, are, are they true? Here's what Jesus says. You'll know they're true if in your heart you desire to love and obey and follow God. Do you know that? God is going to show you that Jesus' word is true. 
Uh, I quote this verse often, and, and it's probably going to come up again somewhere in this, in this talk. But I want to quote it right now, even though it's not in my notes. God says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Some of your translations say diligently seek him, right? So I think what Jesus is saying is if your heart is to not suppress the truth that is available to us in the universe, okay? The question is not, is there a God? That's not the question. The universe screams to us that there is a creator, that there is somebody who has designed this. Everything about the universe testifies to that. So here's what Jesus is saying. If your heart is to not suppress what nature tells you, then Jesus says, you'll know my words are from him. You'll know my words are God's words. You'll know the truth. And, and so let me, let me say, I would, I would love to have Gabriel come and speak to me. Why it is that God wants us to walk by faith and not by our senses. I, you know, and that's one thing I guess he'll explain to us one day. But that's where God's premium is, everybody. It's with faith. It's always been by faith. That you can look at creation, that you can look at the world, that you can look at what God's put in your own heart. And by faith, you can say, God, I know you exist and I'm going to seek you. And if you seek him, God says he'll reward you. And he also says, Jesus says, he'll, he'll let you know that what Jesus says is true. So I think one of the questions we ought to ask people if you get into a conversation with someone about, about God is, is just ask them the question. Are you, are, if, if, there, if there is a God, are you willing to submit yourself to him and follow him? Are you willing to give your life to this creator who created you? Do you think he's worthy of your allegiance? And if the answer is yes, then say to them, hey, just read the words of Jesus because he will show you. He will show you that his words come from God the Father. That brings me to my last lesson. Not the last text, but the last lesson. And the last lesson that I want to challenge us with this morning is to judge righteously. To judge righteously. Jesus does something that he doesn't openly often do, but he does in verse 19 through 24, he defends himself. Let's look at it. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did, not, I did one deed, and you marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. Let me just comment on that. You know, the circ circumcision was given to Abraham. It was passed down. It was not part of the Mosaic law, though it was incorporated in that law. That's what Jesus means. It's pre-Moses. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that, he, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, Jesus makes it clear, the Apostle Paul makes it clear all throughout the book of Romans that nobody could, can live the law of God in such a way as to say, God, I am deserving of your forgiveness. I'm deserving of eternal life. I'm deserving of whatever. I, we cannot, nobody lives the law. It was never meant, the law was never given to us as a means by which we can accomplish our own righteousness. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. We're all unrighteous as far as the works of the law are concerned. It's always been by faith. And Jesus just comes out and says to them, you know, you guys don't live according to the law of God, although that you claim you do. And as an example of that, he says, you are trying to kill me. You know, what's one of the commandments? Thou shalt not 
murder, right? And yet they're trying to murder him. They're trying to kill him. They don't have any basis for it, but they're trying to murder him. And he's using that as an example. Now, when he says that, he's speaking. Remember, this conversation that we're, that we're witnessing here is between the Jewish leadership and between Jesus, even though he's in the temple and even though there's a crowd. So he says this out loud, and he says, you're trying to murder me. And the crowd says back to him, Man, you're crazy. You've got a demon. Nobody's trying to murder you. Look at you. You're sitting right up there on the, on the stoop of the temple. And nobody's trying to kill you. Why are you saying they're trying to kill you? Jesus ignores. I, I believe Jesus is ignoring the crowd. He ignores that statement and he goes on. And he's speaking to the Jewish leadership. And he says, I did one deed. I did one deed. And you all marveled at it, but you also turned against me. What was the one deed that he did? One Passover earlier, what had he done? He healed the lame guy at the pool of Bethesda, and that is when it says they began to turn, about, turn against him. Now remember, he, he was beginning to make claims like he's God, he's the only way to God, that Jesus, remember that conversation, that discourse? Go back and read it. John chapter 5, right, where Jesus confronts them. He says, I did that one thing, and you guys marveled, but you've also turned against me because of that one deed. And this is where he defends himself. And he says, you know, Moses gave us circumcision. It's really easy to understand this, this, what Jesus is saying. Moses gave us circumcision. Not really. I mean, it came from Abraham. But, but Moses, it's in the law. But yet you guys will circumcise a guy on the Sabbath. Remember, you had to circumcise boys on the eighth day. And the eighth day would, you know, depending on when they were born, the eighth day would fall on the Sabbath. And he said, you'll circumcise somebody on the Sabbath. And by the way, just so you know, there was a great discussion amongst the, the Jewish rabbis whether they should do that or not, because they have a conflict. They think they're working, you know, by, by circumcising a young baby. They're, they're, work, they're working, but this is the Sabbath, so what do we do? And all the rabbis came to the conclusion that the Sabbath outweighed the, you know, the, 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 the need to circumcise outweighed the prohibition against work, something that God had never spelled out. They'd spelled that out. You all following me? And Jesus said, you, you look at this and you say, well, you know, the Sabbath, here's the Sabbath, but it gets set aside to circumcise a child on the eighth day. And you think that's okay. He said, and here I come along, and on the Sabbath day, I take a man and I make him whole. And somehow you think that that doesn't, doesn't somehow supersede your Sabbath rules. Everybody understand? I mean, it's extreme logic, isn't it? He's simply saying, you know, why can't you judge righteously? You, you recognize rightly that it's okay to circumcise on the Sabbath. Why can't you judge rightly and recognize that it's okay for me to heal somebody and make them well on the Sabbath? Why would you not think that way? So, so he says to them, don't judge by outward appearance. He says, but instead judge righteously. You know, it kind of reminds me of the Old Testament where Samuel goes to pick David, you know, the king. And remember all the brothers come first. And, and Samuel just keeps thinking, this one's it, this one's it, this one's it. And it's never that one. And, and God says to Samuel, he said, but the Lord said to him, do not look on the, his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so in essence, what, what God told Samuel that day was there's more to judge than just what's on the surface right? We've got to be able to judge, you know, at the heart level. And so here Jesus is saying to them, and again, doesn't this sound like Matthew 7, uh, 1? Matthew 7, 1 is the most famous verse in all the Bible. Every unbeliever knows it. Judge not 
lest you be judged, right? Everybody knows that verse, right? And that's the verse that's thrown up against us a lot. And if you remember from our study of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not telling us not to judge. He's telling us not to judge unrighteously, which is exactly what he says here. Here he says, judge and judge righteously, all right? So as we end this morning, I I thought I would just talk about that for a second and just give you two practical thoughts I have that that sort of stem from this encounter here that that Jesus has with these Pharisees and these Jewish leadership. There's two two practical thoughts on judging righteously. Here's here's the first one, everybody. Uh, We're not equipped to judge people's motives. We're not equipped to judge people's motives. They could not look at Jesus' heart, and neither, neither can we. We are just simply not equipped to do that. We can look at somebody's actions and say, according to the Scripture, that action is wrong, but we cannot say what motivated that action is evil or whatever, right? We, we, we don't have a right to do that. So one of the things I would say to us is, is let's be careful not to judge people's hearts that we can't see. In the exact same way, in the exact same way that God told Samuel, he said, Samuel, don't look on the outward appearance because I'm looking on the heart. I see the heart. And he was trying to say, David's heart was awesome. That's what he was trying to say. David had a man, was a man after my own heart. That's why I want David. In the same way, sometimes we ascribe evil motives to people when they don't have evil motives. So I would just warn us against judging people's hearts. We, we, I don't think we have a right to do that. But the other thing that I wanted to point out from the text, and this really is evident in the text, and that is that our prejudices affect our judgment. Our preconceived notions, our presumptions, our, um, those, those things that, that go ahead and how we think, they affect and taint our judgment, and we've got to not do that. In this particular case, they were against Jesus all along. And so it, enabled, it, made, it rendered them unable to judge with just, just plain, simple, common sense and logic that if it's okay to circumcise somebody, it would be okay to heal them and make them all well. They were not able to follow that. And, and so we've got to be really careful that our preconceptions and our prejudgments and our prejudices don't cause us to judge with hypocrisy. I tell you, this is, this is a really big warning to us, and this is one of the things that I think Jesus was speaking to with regard to us. Let's go back to Matthew 7. You remember Matthew 7 and the do not judge lest you be judged? You remember that he says, you know, you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye, but you've got a big plank in your own eye. Remember that? He says, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you can see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He wasn't telling us not to take the speck out of our brother's eye. He was saying, don't judge with hypocrisy. Don't, don't somehow not look at, don't judge with those preconceptions that you have. And, and in our politics today, and oh, I just, I really don't even want to go there, but we see it in our politics all the time. You know, what, what, what this party does is wrong, but when my party does it, it's okay. Or vice versa. Let's not be that way. As, as we listen, our kingdom, I wrote something on my Facebook that I hope every one of you will go and read. And it says that we're part of a rival nation. We, we belong to a different kingdom. We follow a different leader. Our allegiance doesn't belong to America. And I know some of y'all want to shoot me for that statement. But I want to tell you, ultimately, our allegiance belongs to Jesus above our country, above everything else. 
And that doesn't mean that we don't love our country. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that we have transferred our allegiance and we've said we're a part of a different nation. We're a part of the nation of the kingdom of God. We have a different leader. We have a different ethic. We, everything about us is different. It's supposed to be so different. And by the way, our early brothers and sisters, they paid for that difference with their lives because they lived as if Jesus was king and not Caesar. I tell you, everyone, Jesus is saying, let's judge from his ethic. Let's judge without our prejudices. Let's make sure that we are judging righteously. Judge, everyone. I think we're called to judge. We're called to make, we're called to stand up and say, this is wrong. This is not right. This is not what God would want us to do. Well, let's make sure we're doing it from a heart that is, is aligned with Jesus and with his word. All right, I'm done. Two lessons, uh, I'd say, to, uh, and from the words of Jesus, the two of my lessons this morning apply to you that maybe who are not yet followers of Jesus, but yet seeking. Maybe you're not there yet. So here are my two lessons for you. Don't let familiarity with Jesus keep you from surrendering to him as God. Now, of course, it has an application for us as well, everybody. Don't let your, don't let your uh, familiarity with Jesus keep you from surrendering your entire life to him. And following him as creator and Lord, as God, he's the one you follow. He is your Lord. The second lesson, if you're willing to truly love God and follow him, then I promise you Jesus will reveal to you the truth of his word. He will. If that's your heart, he will, re- he will reveal himself to you. So read, read what Jesus says and, and search your own heart about that question. And the last two lessons are for us, those who follow Jesus. Remember, guys, that the, the key to to our glorification is to entrust God for that. To not be about self-promoting ourselves, but instead to, in humility and authenticity and honesty, be who we are and let God promote us as God desires to promote us. Let's follow his will. And the second thing is what I just got through talking about, and that is let's judge righteously. Let's bow your heads, if you would, for just a moment. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts now in just this quietness of this moment. It's a, it's a bit hot in here, Lord, and I don't know if I'm losing people because of temperature or just not communicating very well, but I, I pray, Holy Spirit, help us now. Lord, would you speak to our hearts about these four lessons that, that came from Jesus' exchange with those Jewish leaders? Lord, would you show us what it is that maybe I can learn, take away how I might can apply this to my life? Holy Spirit, now in the quietness of the next moment or so, would you, would you speak to each of our hearts? Father, I know that I speak for all of us when I say, or I speak for all of us who follow you. We want to follow you better. We want to follow you with a greater love. We want to follow you with greater consistency. Uh, we, we want to be like Jesus. We ask you to conform us to his image so that when people see us, they see our Savior. They see our King. Lord, may everything about our life point us, point others, excuse me, to you. So help us with that. Lord, these things that apply to our heart this morning, would you take and apply them to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.